Eric, thank you for leading today. David Gone and worship team, we have, we have sung some glorious truths, amen? I mean, we could, we could just go home right now and, and be good, um, but the Lord has another word for us this morning, and so I'd invite you to take that word and turn with me to the book of Titus, chapter 3. We have been out of the book of Titus for a couple of weeks now, and we come back to Titus, chapter 3, this morning. And we're going to look at just two verses. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2 this morning. But I think you'll see that there, as one commentator said, is more in these verses than meets the eye. So Titus chapter 3, I'll begin reading here in just a moment in verse 1. In his book, How the Nations Rage, Rethinking Faith and Politics in a Divided Age, author Jonathan Lehman, he describes three wrong approaches that many Christians in America fall into and often do in their approach to politics and into the public square. Three wrong approaches. Here they are. He says, wrong approach number one, he says, is disengagement. Disengagement. You've seen it, right? These are Christians who cut themselves off from the world, right? Sort of waiting until Jesus returns and so as not to be tainted by the world, so as not to be tarnished by the world. He writes, here Christians isolate themselves from civic or public life and focus only on their lives together. They tell themselves that this is the spiritual thing to do. However, he says, this neutral stance in fact actually endorses an evil and unjust political status quo. And in so doing, he writes, they compromise their gospel witness. That's wrong approach number one. Wrong approach number two, he says, is capitulation. Capitulation, meaning they they surrender to certain political or cultural ideologies. He writes, this is not the path of neutrality, but rather of positively endorsing the world and its ways. So this is an embracing, he says, of the secular culture. And he writes, oh, how promising this path looks. It wins friends and immediately offers political status. But, he says, this too is a dead end because inevitably what happens is this path leads to the church and the world becoming indistinguishable and therefore it too compromises its gospel witness. But the third wrong approach And perhaps the one I think most helpful and insightful for us, especially in light of our passage this morning, Lehman says the third wrong approach is that of what he calls worldly engagement. Now, he doesn't mean simply engaging with the world. What he means is engaging with the world in a worldly way, in a sinful way. In other words, fighting against the culture using the same tactics as the world uses. And friends, I think that perhaps this is the trap into which many of us often fall. This is often our approach to political issues and to the public square. He says and writes, there is a way of engaging that is right on the substance, but wrong on the strategy and the tone. And then he says something very insightful about this third approach, I think, when he writes this. Listen, he says, there is a time and a place to fight Yet the picture scripture offers is less one of a cultural warrior and more one of an ambassador. 
Ambassadors, he says, know how to fight, but they also know how to be diplomatic. They're not just trying to win a war, they are trying to represent a whole other kingdom. They are trying to represent an entirely different kingdom. And in Titus chapter 3, Paul, too, wants to remind these Cretan believers, and he wants to remind you and I as well this morning, he wants to remind us that we, too, represent an entirely different kingdom, a whole other kingdom, a kingdom that is, that is not of this world. That, in fact, you and I as Christians, we live simultaneously in two different kingdoms, don't we? We live in the kingdom of this world, and yet we are citizens of the kingdom of Christ. A kingdom that is already, but a kingdom that is not yet. In fact, we are those, according to chapter 2, notice, who are waiting, so to speak, in between these two appearings of Christ. Look there, chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then in verse 13, notice, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the Christian life, notice, is described as living in between these two appearings of Christ, between his first coming and between his second coming. And that raises some very good questions, doesn't it? Raises questions like, so then how are we to wait? How are we as Christians to engage with the secular culture? How do we relate to governing authorities of this present kingdom in which we live? How do we relate to non-Christians in the public square? Do we retreat? Do we capitulate? Do we just try to scream and shout over the voices of our culture? What do we do? What does it look like? What it should characterize and distinguish our lives as Christians in this present age? And in Titus chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, he turns now to address the Christian's relational responsibilities to governing authorities and to all non-Christians in general. And he wants to remind these Cretan believers, and brothers and sisters, he wants to remind you and I as well this morning. He wants to remind us that you and I are to live strategic lives in our relationships with unbelievers and with the secular world for the sake of the gospel. And so these words could not be any more relevant for our own day as they were in Paul's day. Let's see what the Apostle Paul says. Titus Chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. I'd invite you, as is our custom, to stand as we read these two verses together. The Apostle Paul writes, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Beloved, this is the word of God. May he write its truth on our hearts. You can be seated. I think that if the Apostle Paul, he were to summarize this little three-chapter letter written to Titus, if he were to 
summarize his letter in two words, it would be the words, doctrine and duty. Doctrine and duty. The book of Titus is about the inseparable link between doctrine and duty, between faith and practice, between belief and behavior, that in essence, the gospel changes the way that we live now. It's about practical, everyday Christian living. And this change, this transformation, it happens, as we've seen, as the Christian continues to look back to God's saving grace in Christ at the cross, at his first coming, chapter 2, verse 11, and as the Christian looks forward to God's future grace when he will return again, chapter 2, verse 13, and it's this grace that changes and shapes and transforms the way that we live in the present. Chapter 2, verse 12. There is an inseparable link between doctrine and duty, between belief and behavior, that grace changes the way that we live. And Paul has been showing us throughout this letter how this grace should change and affect the way that we live. So, in Titus chapter 1, we saw, we saw how the grace of God changes the way that we live in the church. And then, in Titus chapter 2, we saw where Paul addresses these various groups, older and younger, various groups in order to show how the gospel affects our homes and our relationships in our homes and in the church. And now in chapter 3, Paul, he turns now to address how this grace affects our relationships with the outside world. So, he moves now from the inner circles of, of home life and church life to now addressing the outer circle of secular society. And what is it that should characterize our relationships with the outside world? What should characterize how we engage with the secular culture and with those in the public square? And Paul says it's good works. Good works are what should distinguish our lives in the secular culture. In fact, in fact, note that no other book in the Bible takes such a concentrated focus on the theme of good works as does the book of Titus. Paul explicitly uses that phrase, good works, six times in these three short chapters. Even notice just our present passage. Look there. Notice how he bookends this passage in this call to good works. Look there, chapter 3, verse 1, where he says that we are to, Christians, be ready for every good work. And then, notice in chapter 3, verse 8, as he concludes this section here, he says, the Christian is to be careful to devote themselves to good works. So listen, Paul has a, he has a single concern here in this passage. And here it is. It is the Christian's relationship with the non-Christian world for the sake of the gospel. That's his concern. And that concern, it begins here, notice in verse 1, with the Christian's relationship first to governing authorities, and then he broadens out that theme in verse 2 to include the Christian's relationship and interactions to all people. You see it there in verse 2. To all people, meaning to non-Christians, to those outside of the church. And so, 
Our outline this morning is going to be as follows. Very simple. We're going to look at two things. First, we're going to see godly living in relationship to governing authorities. And then, godly living in relationship to all non-Christians. So, godly living in relationship to governing authorities, and then in relationship to all non-Christians. But before we do that, let me just say a couple of observations about chapter 3 as we move into this final chapter of Titus. Here's the first thing. Number one. The main imperative, the main command in this passage is there in verse 1. It is, remind them. Paul instructs Titus to remind these Cretans. Now, why is that? Well, it implies two things, doesn't it? Here's what it implies. First, it implies that what he's about to tell them is something that they already know. Right? They know this stuff. Apparently, Paul had already taught them this in his first visit to the island of Crete, and so they already know this stuff. However, the second implication is that they need to be reminded. Why? Because they often forget it. It's easy to forget these things. The Cretans needed to be reminded, and beloved, you and I need to be reminded as well of our responsibility towards governing authorities and to the outside world because we tend to forget it. And that verb, remind them, it is is a present tense verb. It is ongoing. Keep on reminding them, Titus. John Kitchen says in his commentary, he says, much of a pastor's energy is spent in the ministry of reminder. (laughs) Remind them. Listen, we never outgrow the need for the ministry of reminder. Why? Because the Christian life isn't just about learning new things. It is about being transformed by what you already know. And so listen, I got nothing new for you today. I got nothing new for you that you have not already heard, but I have been instructed to serve you best by reminding you of what you already know, by reminding you of your relationships to the outside world for the sake of the gospel. Here's the second thing, though. Titus 3, Titus 3 follows the exact same pattern that we've already seen thus far in Titus. Here's what I mean. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, it follows the same pattern as we've seen in chapter 2, verses 1 to 14, where the apostle, if you remember, he begins with ethical instructions, verses 1 and 2, and then he immediately grounds those instructions, those imperatives, in theological indicatives, sound doctrine. In what God has already done in verses 3 to 8. So it's duty and then doctrine. It's behavior and then the basis for that behavior. In other words, verses 3 to 8 of chapter 3 are the theological motivation for verses 1 and 2. And it all hinges there in verse 3. Notice on that word for. Here's why. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. And we'll see that even in the weeks to come. But here's the last thing. Let me just say about this chapter before we look at these two, these two headings together. It's this. It's that every sermon has its limitations. And what I mean by that is this sermon cannot deal with every situation and how one relates to the government and in how one relates to the public square, to the secular culture. All right? 
I try as best as I can in every sermon to give specific application, but I just can't do it all, right? There are myriads of ways that you could apply these verses. And so, let me just encourage you, in fact, let me just exhort you that you have the perfect setting for this. You have the perfect opportunity in your small groups tonight to really flesh this out and what it looks like. What a gift from God that we can get together and discuss and apply how we're going to live this out on a practical level. So do it. First, godly living in relationship to governing authorities. Verse 1. Notice in verse 1 that Paul instructs Titus to remind these Cretan believers, and you and I as well, of three obligations that the Christian has as it relates to governing authorities. Verse 1. Notice that Paul, he makes it abundantly clear that the Christian isn't exempt from exercising proper relationships to those in positions of authority. That these new Christians, they must not conclude that because of their new allegiance to Christ, that it somehow exempts them from appropriate submission to the state. And so notice these three obligations that Paul gives in verse 1. He says, notice they are to be submissive, they are to be obedient, and they are to be ready for every good work. So let's just take those in turn. First, notice Paul says they are to be submissive. The Christian is to relate to governing authorities by being submissive, by being subject to their governing authorities. Verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. So the Christian is called by God to submit to secular governing authorities. Now this isn't the first time this isn't the first time in this letter where Christians are told to submit, is it? In fact, if you notice back, remember chapter 2 verse 5 where Paul says young women are to be submissive to their own husbands. So you see submission in the home. And then, chapter 2, verse 9, notice he says bondservants are also to be submissive to their own masters and everything. So you see submission even there in work relationships, in the workplace. Or even notice in chapter 2, verse 15, where Paul tells Titus and these elders whom he is to appoint there in verse 15 to declare these things and to exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. So you see here there's even submission in authority within the church, pastors and elders. And now he instructs here in verse 1, notice, Christians to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to the secular government, to local and state and civil and federal governing authorities. And as we've said before, this kind of submission that the Christian is called to, whether it be in the home or the workplace, or it be in in church or the government, this kind of submission that he is calling us to here is not a kind of begrudging submission. It is not a kind of reluctant or resentful kind of submission. No, this is to be a happy submission. This is to be a glad submission. This is to be a joyful kind of submission. Now, how is that? How is the Christian able to joyfully submit to governing authorities 
especially when I disagree with those governing authorities. Especially when those governing authorities are run by non-Christians, even pagan or ungodly leaders. How can the Christian joyfully submit? And the reason that I, I say joyful submission, rather than simply just some sort of outward action, right, don't bomb the Pentagon, is because, notice Paul's progression here in verses 1 and 2. He moves inward, doesn't he? Look there. He moves here from the external to the internal. He moves here from submission to obedience to good works to even our words and our attitudes. Listen, friends, this is about your heart. This is not simply just about your actions. So how then How then do we submit to the government when we don't always or in every way agree with that government? Because after all, what's our tendency most often in relating to governing authorities? What's our tendency? I'll tell you what my tendency is. It's to complain. Is yours to complain? You ever complain about Illinois government? Did you complain this last tax season when you were filling out those forms? That's our tendency, isn't it? So, so how can we then joyfully submit? Well, Paul's going to give us the motivation in verse 3 and following. But one other way, one important reason we are to joyfully submit is because we remember that government, no matter how fallen it may be, it is a good gift from God. It is given and instituted by God. Romans chapter 13, Paul says that government has been ordained and instituted by God. In fact, it's a good gift from God. It's a a gracious gift from Him given in order to promote good and to restrain evil. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 as well. Friend, do you see it that way? Do you see government that way? Do you realize that if God were to remove his restraining grace, if he were to remove the ordained means of human government, that our society, as we know it, would descend into total anarchy? That's how wicked the human heart really is. This is a good and gracious gift from God. And the Christian, the Christian demonstrates their appreciation for that gift and ultimately their submission to God himself in and through their submission to governing authorities. Which, by the way, is completely countercultural, isn't it? I mean, is that countercultural in our culture today? I mean, you just turn on the top news outlets, or you look at the comments on social media, and you see that honor and respect and submission to those in authority is certainly not the case in our culture, is it? In fact, certainly wasn't the case on the island of Crete. Do you remember do you remember Paul's unflattering description of the Cretans? Chapter 1, verse 12, look what he says there. The Cretans were liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. I mean, Cretan culture, it was stereotyped as being rebellious. It was, it was notorious for being unsubmissive, non-submissive toward governing authorities. 
And no doubt, no doubt this would have been true. This would have characterized these Cretans to whom Paul writes prior to their conversion. But now, these Cretan Christians, they are to display a distinctly different attitude toward governing authorities, and it is all as a result of the life-transforming grace of God. They are now to joyfully submit out of their grace-filled obedience and out of their love for God and for the sake of the gospel. They submit to governing authorities. And distinguishing here, notice in verse 1, between rulers and authorities, I, I think this includes perhaps and extends to any and every authority in your life, Christian, whether it be the government or it be bosses or it be teachers or it be coaches or it be parents. Christians are called to submit to authority. But notice also, second, he says they are to be obedient. They're to be obedient. Submission naturally leads to obedience. Verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, and to be obedient. So Paul instructs these Cretan believers to obey their Roman governing authorities, which simply means that we obey the government, whatever form it takes. We obey the law, even the ones we don't really like. We obey them. We submit to them. We pay our taxes. We, we follow the laws of the land. We obey those authorities that have been instituted by God, whether it be in the form of building permits or it be in the form of speed limits. We obey them. We submit to them, whether it be at a local level, a state level, a federal level, whether it be the president or congressman or city government or law enforcement officials, each and every day, you and I are presented with numerous opportunities to display with our lives, to display with the way that we live, the transforming effect of the gospel, and we do so by our attitudes and our obedience to governing authorities. Now listen, of course, this obedience, it, it doesn't come here without certain limitations, right? I mean, Paul isn't suggesting that the Christian blindly follow the government into unconditional obedience and allegiance. No, no. Scripture is abundantly clear that we obey governing authorities, but we do so only insofar as our obedience to those authorities doesn't come into conflict with our obedience to God and His Word, right? In fact, Paul's phrase there, notice in verse 1, he says, be ready for every good work. Do you see that there? Good work. I, I think this shows us here, it shows us that Paul, he puts a limit on our obedience to the state. He isn't advocating here unconditional obedience. He's limiting it to every good work. In fact, the Christian, the Christian is not to obey the state. The Christian is, in fact, to practice civil disobedience if that state is advocating sin or evil or something contrary to the Word of God. And we see examples of this throughout Scripture, don't we? I thought of a few. 
Exodus chapter 1, we remember the Hebrew midwives disobey the order of the king to kill the Hebrew baby boys. Daniel, right? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to bow down to the king, worship the king. Acts chapter 4, where Peter and John refused to cease from preaching the gospel over and over and over again. You see pictures of where this obedience first and foremost lies with God and not with man. And not to mention the many numerous examples we've seen even throughout our own history, even throughout history itself. I think Robert Yarbrough, he helps us here in his commentary where he says this. He says, over the past century, history offers us numerous examples of godly and most would say justifiable civil disobedience on the part of Christians. He writes, whether Bonhoeffer in opposition to the Nazis or Corrie ten Boom and her family hiding Jews from the same tyrants, or American Christians defying racial segregation laws during the civil rights movement of the 60s, or the Christian martyrs in numerous nations refusing to renounce their faith. He writes, Paul is not blindly ordering Titus to enforce adherence to civil rule no matter what, but, he says, Christians should be exemplary subjects and citizens even in a pagan social order. And so, beloved, we are called to be submissive and obedient to governing authorities. Why? Well, because if our gospel is to have any credible standing with the unbelieving world, we must not tarnish that reputation by our sinful unwillingness to submit to authority. This is about the gospel. It ain't about politics. And then he says, third, that's not all. The Christian must be ready for every good work. The Christian must be ready for every good work. Verse 14, look there. Christians should be Excuse me, chapter 2, verse 14, Christians should be zealous for good works. Chapter 3, verse, or chapter 3, verse 18, we should be careful to devote ourselves to good works. And here in verse 1, Christians are to be ready for every good work. And notice that these good works, they seem to be in reference here to the governing authorities, but they also most likely, I think, include the all people there at the end of verse 2, toward all people. So, so in other words, Paul is saying here to these Cretan Christians that they are to show and demonstrate and be ready to do good in the form of serving others and in service to their communities. They are to engage in good deeds in the public arena. And they are to be, notice, they are to be ready to do them. As one commentator wrote, this is consistent, aggressive goodness. <laughs> they are to be ready for every possible good work. They are to be proactively looking for opportunities to bless their communities and to love their neighbors. This, this is to be the 
observable effect from the outside world, this is to be the observable effect of the gospel on their lives. The Christian is to stand out and be marked by their good deeds, by their good works in the public arena. Which means that Christians are to care about their neighborhoods. Christians are to care about the city in which they live. They are to be concerned about the welfare of the surrounding community. They are not meant to isolate themselves from the non-Christian community. Edmund Hybert, in his commentary, he writes this so helpful. He says, as good citizens, believers must be ready to do whatever is good prepared and willing to participate in activities that promote the welfare of the community. They must not stand, he says, coldly aloof from praiseworthy enterprises of government, but show good public spirit, thus proving, listen, thus proving that Christianity is a constructive force in society. This is huge. Brothers and sisters, listen, this is an implication of the gospel. I'm not saying this is the gospel, but what I am saying is that this is, Paul says here, an ethical implication of the gospel. Paul is not advocating here for some sort of social gospel. Where, where Christians are to be concerned primarily and only with social reform and injustices in society. No, but what he is saying is that an ethical implication for those who have been transformed by the gospel is that they care about and they are concerned about and they are actively looking to do good and to practice good works and to seek to uh, resist injustice and evil in society and promote the welfare of their community. In verse 1, they must be ready for every good work. So the question is, are we ready? Are we ready? Are, are we actively looking for those opportunities? Or are we standing coldly aloof? Distancing ourselves from the unbelieving community. Showing a lack of concern for the welfare of our, our cities and our neighborhoods. I mean, I think about, we, we've, been, we've had the opportunity to serve in Oak Grove. Fruit Bowl, our own backyard. What about the east side of town? What about in your neighborhoods, your neighbors, where you live right now? Where you have opportunity to show that Christianity is a constructive force in society. Why? Here's why. Because it gains us a hearing for the gospel. It gains us a hearing for the gospel. But second, second heading, Paul says, that godly living in relationships must be exemplified not only to governing authorities, but to all non-Christians. Look there, verse 2. Notice in verse 2 that Paul, he transitions now from their relationship to the state, in verse 1, and he turns now to address their relationships with all people, verse 2. So notice the all. Speak evil of no one, or show perfect courtesy to all people. So 
Notice how, how Paul, he, he broadens the scope here, doesn't he? And this is, this is about the public square. Pa- Paul is concerned about how these Christians engage and relate to their non-Christian neighbors. And just as a way of reminder of why Paul is so concerned about this, don't fail to see this. It is because it is for the sake of the gospel. It gains us a hearing for the gospel with the unbelieving world. Friend, listen, we must not think, especially in our growing secular culture, where Society is becoming more and more distant from Christianity and more and more hostile to Christianity. We must not for a second think that unbelievers are just going to make their way into our church buildings. No. No. Our platform for engaging with unbelievers and gaining a hearing for the gospel, it is going to happen only as you and I relate to the non-Christian world in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in the public specter. So how do we relate? Well, Paul gives us four commands. Four social attitudes for how we relate to the unbelieving world. Notice there's two negative and two positive. Verse two, look at the first, the two negative. Number one, we speak evil of no one. Negatively, you could say, we do not slander. Verse 2. Notice that that word there for speak evil, it comes actually from the Greek word from which we get the word blasphemy. So this is blaspheming. This is blaspheming someone. Meaning, this is to malign, to slander, to defame, to curse, to treat with contempt. We don't slander. We don't malign. We don't attack the character or reputation of anyone. Even if we don't agree. Christians are to avoid and abstain from the very common practice of slander. Now, this is to be true. Notice I think Paul would mean in the workplace, this is true with our neighbors, this is true in the public square, on social media, in politics, we don't slander, we don't insult, we don't mock with abusive language, especially those even we disagree with, right? I mean, our culture is growing increasingly hostile and aggressively attacking anyone who disagrees with them. Isn't that right? I mean, isn't that how our culture and our world operates? And sadly, the sad reality is that many Christians have adopted the same weapons and the same tactics and the same tone as the world. Now, this doesn't mean that we roll over and we never speak up or we remain silent when we see injustice or we see evil. No, I'm not suggesting that. Paul's not suggesting that. However, it does mean that As Christians, being transformed by grace, right? It means that we adopt in our vocabulary and with those whom we disagree, we adopt what Russell Moore calls in his book, Onward, convictional kindness. That's a great term, convictional 
kindness. He says this. He says, the challenge of the next generation is to cultivate a convictional kindness in our witness as we address the outside world. He writes, this kindness is not weak or passive. This is not a break from the fighting, he says. This is how Christians fight. The Christian fights in the public square with convictional kindness. And we do so by speaking evil of no one. Which leads to the second negative social attitude Paul mentions here. Notice also in verse 2, he says, we avoid quarreling. Mm. We avoid quarreling, verse 2, to speak evil of no one and to avoid quarreling. New American Standard says to be peaceable. Literally, it means to be without battle. So this is not fighting. This is not quarreling. This is an attitude that is unbecoming of a Christian. This is how the Christian is not to relate to the non-Christian world. They are not to fight. They are not to quarrel. And again, again, this has become the norm in public discourse, has it not? But it must not be so of the Christian, Paul says. Which means that it's never, listen, it's never simply about winning an argument. I mean, we live, we live in a bumper sticker culture, don't we? You know what I mean? We live in a bumper sticker culture. <laughs> Here's what I mean. A bumper sticker, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with bumper stickers. A bumper sticker, <laughs> it doesn't try to persuade anybody. <laughs> no. You slap it on there, express your opinion, and you don't care how it comes across, you don't care who you offend, you just want to be heard, right? That's a bumper sticker culture. And that's the culture in which we live. And friends, this is often the way that you and I, many Christians, can engage with the unbelieving world. Fighting, quarreling, mocking, when it's never about simply winning an argument. It's about seeking to persuade with the truth. It's about seeking to gain a hearing for the sake of the gospel. That's what Paul is concerned about here. Listen, fighting and quarreling and name-calling, they're sinful, and they don't promote the cause of the gospel. They hinder it. They hinder it. And so, what might be the contexts in which you and I are vulnerable to quarrel and fight and slander with non-Christians. Think about that in your own life. Think about that for a moment. Where is that in your life? Perhaps it's in the workplace. Perhaps it's extended family gatherings. Perhaps it's on social media. Maybe the topics are political. Maybe the topics are ethical. Maybe the topics are theological. But it is unacceptable, Paul says, it is sinful to quarrel and fight and steamroll somebody. Why? Because it fails to display the transforming effect of the gospel and to gain a hearing for the gospel. And so the question is, how would your non-Christian friend, neighbor, 
coworker, family member, how would they describe you? But then notice the two positive commands he gives, two positive social traits for how the Christian is to engage with the unbelieving world. Look there. Third, they are to be gentle. Verse two, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, and be gentle. So slander and quarreling, these would be the opposite of gentle, but Paul says here, instead, instead of being contentious, instead of being argumentative, the Christian rather is to be gentle. We should be characterized as a people of gentleness. So what then does gentleness look like as we engage the unbelieving world? What does that look like? Well, I think, I think Jerry Bridges helps us here so well in his book, The Fruitful Life. Great book. You should read that book on the fruit of the Spirit. And he helps us here when he talks about gentleness when he says this. Listen to what he says. This is so insightful. He says, a profile of gentleness will first include actively seeking to make others feel at ease. He says, or restful in our presence. We feel at ease around us. Then he says, we should not be so strongly opinionated or dogmatic that others are afraid to express their opinions in our presence. Instead, we should be sensitive to others' opinions and ideas. He goes on to say this about gentleness. He says, gentleness will demonstrate respect for the personal dignity of other people. When necessary, it will seek to change a wrong opinion or attitude by persuasion and kindness, not in domination or intimidation. And then he says, he says, gentleness, it will also avoid blunt speech and an abrupt manner, instead seeking to answer everyone with sensitivity and respect, ready to show consideration toward all people. We are called to be gentle. And brothers and sisters, this is seen nowhere more clearly than in the person of Jesus Christ himself who said, I am gentle and humble in heart. We are called to be gentle. Finally, Paul says we are to show, notice, perfect courtesy toward all. Look there, verse 2. Be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people. The Christian is to demonstrate courtesy and consideration and humility and regard, notice here, for all people. All people. Regardless of race, regardless of socioeconomic standing, Regardless of their religion, the Christian is to be courteous to how many people? To all people, Paul says. You see, listen, beloved, the gospel transforms the way you see people. The gospel transforms the way in which you treat people. It does. And so this verse, listen, it should give you new eyes for how you see people. Because the, 
There, there is no such thing as an insignificant interaction that you have with an unbeliever even this week. The gospel should change the way that you see people and you view people because you remember that you are a sinner saved by grace. And those encounters, those opportunities that we have each and every week, they are, notice Paul says, to show perfect courtesy to all, toward all people. Perhaps those that are overlooked, perhaps those that are maligned, perhaps those that are marginalized or shamed in our society. We have the responsibility as Christians to show consideration and to courtesy toward all people. So are we showing courtesy, perfect courtesy to all people? Do you know the day of the week that most waiters and waitresses despise working? It is Sunday lunch. It's true. And it ain't because they want to be in church most often. It's because they know that they have to wait on the church crowd. The church crowd who are the rudest, most demanding, worst tipping customers. How can you show perfect courtesy this week? To all people. Maybe to your waitress today at lunch. Maybe to the gas station attendant, the cashier at the grocery store, the guy that sacks your groceries, the lady that cleans your hotel room as you walk by, the guy that picks up your trash. Perhaps those in our society that are often overlooked or marginalized, devalued, this is how Paul says we are to live and interact with governing authorities and the unbelieving world. This is how we engage in politics and in the public square. We don't disengage. We don't capitulate. We don't use worldly tactics to fight. No, no, we submit and we obey in appropriate ways and we look for opportunities to show good and to show kindness and to show generosity and gentleness and courtesy toward all, all people because we are, yes, citizens of this worldly kingdom and yet, as Lehman said, we represent an entirely different kingdom. Do you see that? We represent another kingdom. And so listen, don't forget, don't lose sight here. Paul has a very specific purpose for why, Christian, you are to live like this. There is an important reason why he wants these Cretan believers and he wants you and I to live like this. And it's not so that the world will just see us as nice people. It's not so that Christians won't experience any form of opposition or animosity or conflict with the unbelieving outside world. No, the reason, here's why, the reason is so that you and I, by the way that we live, by the way that we live, by our very lives, we would display the attractiveness of the gospel in the public square. Not put up barriers and hindrances to the gospel by our words and our tones and our actions, but so that our interactions with non-Christians, they would gain us a hearing for the gospel, and then we would be able to proclaim the gospel and advance the gospel. Do you see what that, this is about? We are citizens of this kingdom, but we have become ambassadors of another kingdom. In fact, notice there in chapter 2, Verse 10, the reason Paul again gives, he says, 
for this kind of living. Verse 10, he says, showing all good faith so that, here's why, here's why you're to live like this, Christian, in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So that by the way that we live, by the way that we interact, by the way that we engage with the world, we would display the life-transforming effect of the gospel and gain a hearing for the gospel and then be able to share that gospel. Paul has an evangelistic purpose here. It's not about politics. It's about the gospel. It's about the kingdom of God. In fact, just notice how he ends. We'll end here. As we end, notice even as we look to next week, Paul, notice in verse 3, he's building an argument here. Building an argument. Notice there, isn't he? Notice how after giving these ethical instructions in verses 1 and 2, in verse 3, he roots these instructions in theological realities. You see that? Verses 1 and 2 are grounded. They are rooted they find their basis in verses 3 to 8 with that little word there, for. Christian, this is why you are to live this way. Here's, here's why. What's the theological motivation for why you are to live like this? Well, look there, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So listen, Christian, this should be the theological motivation of why you live this way. This should be the reason that you submit to governing authorities and you show perfect courtesy and good works to all people, to the unbelieving world, is because only the grace of God enables you to do that. That we are citizens of another kingdom only because his grace has rescued us. So may we be ambassadors of that kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that our lives, by the way that we live, Lord, they would shine as beacons of light in our dark culture and society, world, a culture that is in enmity with you. Oh, Lord, may we be reminded that we too were once disobedient, foolish, and led astray. How can we show impatience? How can we show harshness? How can we be begrudging when we were your enemies and you've reconciled us only through the grace of God in Christ? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, oh Lord, may that inform and instruct the way that we live our lives as salt and light in this world and we do so not just to political ends, but we do so to show and demonstrate a kingdom that has come and is coming one day. So Lord, help us. Help us to be 
good and faithful citizens, even here and now, showing that Christianity, Christianity, it is, it is a beacon of light in this dark society. Oh, would you help us to live that way? Empower us by this grace that is at work in us, changing us. And may we live as ambassadors for the sake of your kingdom, living for a kingdom that is coming. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand together and sing what's kind of become an anthem around here. He will hold me fast. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. Those He saves are His delight, Christ will hold me fast. Precious in His holy sight, He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last, but by Him at such a cost, He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. For my life he bled and died, Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied, he will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to side. When he comes at last, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loved me so. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. Amen. Well, adorning the doctrine of God our Savior happens very locally. It happens where you are, where you live, with the people with whom you have uh, daily and weekly interaction. And uh, for the next few weeks, Jordan and Liz Cardwell, come on up guys are going to go as a family to Liz's homeland, Kenya. So they're going to have a chance to do this there. And we're going we're gonna to pray for them because I think, if I got it right, today they're leaving. Is that right, guys? 
leaving this afternoon. So I'm going to ask, uh, if, you're in, if you're willing and you're in the small group that uh, Liz and, and Jordan are a part of, if you just come forward and surround them, we're going to pray them out as they go. Is it three weeks, Jordan? Three weeks in Kenya. When's the last time you were home, Liz? Three years ago, okay? So she hasn't been home for three years. And she got her green card recently, which was a big deal. And now she gets to go, and her whole family gets to go back with her, taking her kids, her hubby, and they're going to have a chance to live out what we just talked about for the next three weeks in Kenya. So I'm going to pray for them as their small group surrounds them, and then we'll be done, okay? And don't forget, tonight is small group, so, so let's get in our small group tonight and flesh this stuff out. Okay, Lord, thank you so much for the uh, opportunity you've given the Cardwells to go uh, what, for what must be for Liz a really special uh, visit home. See her family, see her, her, uh, her friends, her village, the place where she grew up, and the people that have meant so much to her and her church there. And so, Lord, as they go today, would you give them a, a safe journey halfway around the world nearly? And would you give them a good, give the kids the capacity to sleep on those airplanes and enable them, because it's a short trip, Father, so enable them to kind of hit the ground running with some energy and some strength. And Lord, over these three weeks while they're there, would you give them chances to minister out of the fullness of the gospel? Would you give them opportunities to speak and serve, to pray for people, to listen well, to uh, engage with people? Uh, with gentleness and courtesy toward all the people that they, uh, that they are interacting with? Would you enable them, Lord, to be um, not quarrelsome, but uh, showing that, that gentleness? Not speaking evil of anyone, but showing perfect courtesy to all. And may their life, Lord, there, even if in a short trip like this, may their life be such a powerful demonstration of the gospel's transforming power. And Lord, I pray that for all of us, that this week, uh, what we've just heard, we would both uh, in, our, in our engagement with the world in, in big ways, on social media or in the public sphere, and in the way we interact with people in the quieter moments of life, uh, that we would obey the scriptures this week because we want to see the gospel adorned by good works. And may more people come to encounter in Kenya and in the United States, in this town, in this community this week, encounter the, the transforming power of a God who is Savior in Christ. In his name we pray, amen. You're dismissed.